Hello, everyone. Happy Thursday. Welcome to Pop Culture Mondays on Thursdays. I'm your host, Brooke Hammerling. Pop Culture Mondays on Thursdays. Hi, guys. It's another Thursday. We survived another week. And I'll tell you, there was, uh, I know I say this each week, but um, we're going to get to it. But another week with another sex scandal, this time involving a royal family member. Rumor has it. Uh, But before we get to that fun stuff, I want to introduce to you. This week's guest, who is, I'm almost embarrassed to say that, like, this is my guest. Like, I wish that we had a million listeners um, to, to be able to listen to him because he's fascinating. He's powerful. He's wonderful. He's a dear friend. And it is Mr. Brad Weston, the founder and CEO of Make Ready, uh, which is the producer uh, of movies, pr- producer of movies, TV shows, branded content. Everything in between. And also Brad Weston used to run New Regency from 2011, I think, to 2017. Is that right, Brad? Yes, it is. Where movies like, I don't know, I think there was something like 12 Oscars and 34 noms under your uh, apprenticeship of that. And there was Revenant, there's 12 Years a Slave, Gone Girl, a movie that I'm obsessed with. And we have Brad fucking Weston as our guest today. And we'll get to it, but the maker of the movie that I talked about in this week's newsletter on Hulu, and it's called Not Okay. And we'll get to that, but hi, Brad. Hi, Brooke, thanks for having me. Was that a good intro? Did I miss anything? Did I say anything incorrectly? No, you got it all right, and thank you. Oh my God. I mean, you make movies. You're like, you are the heart of pop culture. And just so you guys understand, I'm one of the reasons I am in Los Angeles has a lot to do with this man, not just because he actually helped me get to LA and introduced me to the person who ended up designing my house in a place that I could live and make it beautiful. But he literally is the epitome of Los Angeles to me. Like I would call it like your vibe is sort of like expensive homeless chic is the way that I looked at it. <laughs> Wearing like, it's like James Purse meets Aviator Nation meets Malibu. I meet him and it's always like he's having a juice in Malibu barefoot with his dogs. And I was like, I'm doing something wrong. You know, you're hiking, you're surfing, you're always doing something active. I don't know if it's a good thing because I always hear about you saying, how distrustful you are of Los Angeles. So, so I appreciate <laughs> it, but it bums me out a little bit, but thank no, you. No, I'm not distrustful. <laughs> I'm not distrustful of LA. I mean, I just do find it. I just keep waiting for somebody to be like, this is all a joke. It's all right. You just made me the caricature of LA. So I, I get it. <laughs> Listen, I've known you for a long time. You're an incredible person and friend and advocate of mine, of so many women that I know. You have been talking the talk and walking the walk longer than it was trendy to do so. I'm just so delighted that you're here today. And what I wanted to do, I want to talk a little bit about what's happened this past week in pop culture, just hear your thoughts on it, whatnot. But then I really want to get into what you do and really this movie that came out. I love and everybody has to watch it. It's on Hulu. It's featured all over Hulu and we'll talk about it, but it's so PCM that it's the perfect way to sort of end the pod because it's literally pop culture. It's why the newsletter and now the podcast exists was what the whole premise of the, of the movie was. So we're going to get into it guys. So get ready. But Brad, 
You read the newsletter. You also are a soccer aficionado. I, I think the biggest story, the thing that took over socials, and it was very unexpected to me because I didn't know anything about this game, was the women's soccer team in England, the Lionesses, winning a massive international tournament, uh, something that the men could not deliver on and bringing it home. And yet, you know, I found out about it on TikTok. There was, we'll get to more on Prince William later but there was the royal family did a TikTok about it and then they won and the memes were crazy. There was Sweet Caroline is the theme song. There was so many exciting moments. Like, did you watch it? Was that something you were paying attention to prior to the, the win? I loved it. I, I loved the, I loved how you covered in the new, in the newsletter. I loved the story. I watched it in real time and I just thought it was it made me cry revisiting it when I read the when I looked at the TikToks in your newsletter this weekend, and I thought it was awesome. I think it's great that the women won and the men haven't won, and and I think that it's completely in line with tra- trajectory of women's soccer and where it's going. You know, it's such a massively growing sport, and with pay equality happening now and all the positive things that are happening in the space that I thought it was just a, a great moment in time. And with Sweet Caroline and seeing the women celebrate they went the way they did and the country embrace them, I just thought it was an incredible moment in pop culture and I loved it. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, more than women's basketball, as much as there has been so much promotion around the WNBA and so much money thrown around in the WNBA and publicity, I think it's women's soccer that we've seen obviously over the years growing and growing and growing. And then you have what you have, I think Natalie Portman owns a team or is a part owner of a team. Is that right? She founded and uh, part owner of Angel City FC. And, and I think we have seen it grow over the years. And I think we are at the place now where hopefully it doesn't dip down the way it always historically has. But now we can keep its steady rise on a trajectory going upwards. We've seen U.S. women's soccer be so successful and inspire so many young women and girls to get out to play and to empower them that I love to see its, its steady influence now on a global scale. I think that's what's so great about what happened with England winning. It takes it from a fairly dominant U.S. women's story into a global right. story, which is wonderful. Right. Yeah, I, I also agree with that. I think I always was perplexed by soccer because... It's the only sport that universally, uh, and by the way, I don't play sports. Everybody should know that. Like I try to kick a ball and I'll break a leg. Like it's happened. Everybody knows I am very, very, very uncoordinated. I mean, it's just not my skill set. I'm really good at sports when it comes to video games. I excel, but in real world applications, it's just not my, I will literally fall just standing still. So not my strong suit, but every single person I knew, every girl and boy played soccer growing up, plays soccer now. And what I never understood was this, there's this fanaticism. I mean, I have friends who have kids and they spend 18 hours a weekend driving to and fro to soccer games and soccer tournaments and it's all things, but then it never, and then a lot of people play it in high school and then maybe some do it in college, but then it sort of drifted off right into something that didn't translate into adulthood or professional sport. It's changed a lot. Obviously in the U S interest has gone from being just a sport that kids are playing in school to real sport that people are watching. It was always that way in Europe and the world, but now women's soccer, as you say, both in the U S and now globally, it's, would it be fair to say, and I know this sounds so terrible, but 
I feel like some of the male soccer people have something to do with that too, because I think it reminded me of Greg Norman just did a stupid interview with Tucker Carlson for the live golf tournament in Saudi Arabia. And when Tucker asked him like, why is the outrage? Like Greg Norman legitimately said, I have no idea why, like, really, you don't know why people might be outraged over Saudi Arabia. But he said something like live is looking at men and even the women were help- like, it was like, Oh, by the way. And even the women were, were part of that too. It infuriated me, but with soccer, the likes of the David Beckham's of the world and others, they have been equalizers on that. At least the way they've spoken about it, that they see it as a male and female sport, not men. Oh, and by the way, women, I feel like some of the success of women's soccer publicly has been legitimized by some of the bigger names in male soccer. Does that ring true or am I completely off the mark there? I could be. I don't know. I think, I think it stands alone, honestly, as its own sport. I think young women have found, I mean, driven by U.S. women's soccer, they just were enthralled with it and the power of it over the last decade. There was the big pay equality ruling where, where women now are getting paid equal to the men, which was a great move. It was a shocking, just a shocking it, thing. Sorry, that, I mean, it's shocking that it's it. the question. I know. No, sorry I we know. to talk about it, but between that and just uh, and they're so good. So you see really great role models, particularly in, in the U.S. The U.S. women's soccer team won so much. So to see these amazing role models, and as I've said to you, and we'll talk about it later, I'm, I'm working actually, you know, with Natalie on developing a, a film about mothers in soccer, you know, just because there was a barrier of entry. Did you want to have a child when you were a professional athlete? And what did that do to your athletic career? Now it's no longer a hindrance. There's actually proof and there's so many women who are saying it's making them better because they're more well-rounded people as a result of it off the field that's actually helping them on the field so there's all these beautiful things happening that are growing the sport and, and eliminating any barriers of participation right i didn't know we could talk about it so thank you for bringing that up you're you're a storyteller i mean you are behind some of the most powerful stories that have ever been created in a public forum whether it's film or documentary or television series but i mean obviously like 12 years a slave right one of those things that just sticks with people you're into storytelling and so the idea of the idea of telling a story about and i never thought about that you had to make a choice before if you're going to be a professional athlete as a woman you could be a mom or you could be the athlete but you could never be both how has that changed why like what is the reasoning there is it because people saw opportunity from money or was it are the women were so outspoken and were able to force the change upon it what are the reasons I think a lot of reasons. And again, I'm, I'm not an expert in this space yet. We're just diving into it. But the league has made it easier for women to do it. They're supported by other women to do it. So the teams have allowed women to take the maternity leaves they needed to take. They train up until they have their child. They come back. There's now daycare associated with it. There's all sorts of support systems that allow the women to do it much more easily and, and not have to make the choice. It's not either or anymore. You can integrate it into your life. And for the, at least in all the research I've been, I've been starting to do, the women are finding that, as I said, it's giving them a, a life off the field that is helping their, their play on the field. And the more you have those success stories, the more people are going to do it. And, and that's amazing. 
<laughs> As you're talking though, I think about, okay, well, what would be the great equalizer from a pop culture perspective? And what we have, uh, it's certainly bigger in the UK than it is in the US, but the WAG, the WAG yeah. culture, which is the wives and girlfriends of professional athletes, right? The WAGs of, and so we've had this story, we've talked about it on the pod a few weeks ago, but the Wagatha Christie trial, which was between two wives of very prominent football stars, soccer stars in the UK that were coming after each other for, you know, spreading gossip and whatnot. And that trial actually just ended last week. And the, the woman who was suing for libel lost. And anyway, the Wagatha Christie, the wag culture. I wonder now if we're going to start having, okay, get rid of hag culture, the husbands of, and girlfriends, or I guess it's hab. I guess it doesn't work. I was so excited. It was going to be a hag, but I guess it's hab husbands and boyfriends of professional athletes. You know, I think it's, an interesting one because they focus so much and, and as much as we love the sports, the part of the selling point is all the drama behind it, right? Who's fighting who and, and so forth. So it'll be interesting if that carries over into the wives, husbands, girlfriends, boyfriends of professional female athletes. We shall see if, if it we have, we have some of it. We have Martina Navratilova on Real Housewives of Miami. Did you know that? I did not. I do not watch Real Housewives, any of the shows, even though I know you do. You, it's just, you, you have not been dialed into the Andy Cohen programming world. But it, it's playing into the gossip of it. I think they court the gossip to get to exactly the point that you're talking about, which goes to the whole point of your newsletter, which is pop culture is everything. There's no difference. Pop culture has become culture. Pop culture has become culture. I thought, you know, the best PR that Tiger Woods has had in a long time from my point of view is that he, it was confirmed by Greg Norman that he turned down an $800 million offer to join the Live tournament. And I was like, well, you know, I mean, obviously Tiger doesn't need the money, but 800 million, I don't care how rich you are, is still a nice number. And for him to say no and be outspoken against it, I thought was really great for him. I thought it was a great move. It was amazing. I read the article this morning and I was like, that's a lot of money. As you said, even if you're wealthy, that's a lot of money. What he chose to you know, support in the PGA and, and is, it was more important to him and, and to be applauded. I thought it was incredible. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty disappointed. I, uh, a little story that some of the listeners might not know, but there was a, a period of my life that I was very involved with PGA world and the PGA players. And that's because I dated somebody uh, who's a well-known musician who is very, very close with a lot of the players. So like Freddie Couples, Phil Mickelson, that whole group. And we would spend a lot of time at tournaments. I always went to his tournament in Hawaii. We went to the Masters every year. It, and I still love going to the Masters, don't get me wrong, but in that world. And then at the time, uh, his dear friend was Phil Mickelson's caddy. And we were all like in the social circles together. And at Phil's caddy, it was uh, Bones Mackay at his wedding. I just remember like, I was pretending to be in a world that I was not comfortable. They were not my people. A lot of them were not my people. There was a lot of hypocrisy. There was a lot of sexism. There was a lot of, you know, inherent racism, but they took as like, it's just like a good old boys culture, right? So I was glad to see, you know, and Tiger was at the center of that. I really, I mean, the amount of racism that was just thrown his way and that they would pretend wasn't racism, was sort of good old boy stuff. It was crazy. And I think what 
Tiger is seeing is that so many of those types of people are the ones that went over to live. And maybe there's an opportunity now to rebuild the PGA from a different perspective and a different mindset. I'm hoping because I think there's a lot of opportunity for them to do so. There is. I'm sorry this has turned into a sports talk radio show, but it's not no, I think but, it's all. <laughs> but, I, but I agree with you. And look, you saw Donald Trump looking at players. I, I mean, nothing was more off putting to a sport than that. And I don't know. I mean, oh. Oh, horrible. And we right? did talk about it. We we normally don't talk about we don't we really don't like to bring Donald Trump into things. He's we don't talk about him in the newsletter, but it is part of the newsletter this week. I mean, the big another big story was that Ivana Trump, his now dead ex-wife, um, was buried in a very sad, very discreet, but but not discreet in a classy way, discreet in a, a side like a oh, we where do we put her way? In a dirt mound kind of way a dirt mound on like the first <laughs> hole of his golf course. And the story is that apparently there's some tax break you get for that, but the memes are hilarious. There is one yesterday where they showcased the dog, Nixon's dog checkers who died and has a much nicer grave. <laughs> and it's just like, what? And, and then there's other memes that saying that Marla Maples needs to like hire security guards and not be at any stairs. I mean, it's also sad, but the pictures of him with Tucker Carlson and whatever her crazy pants name is, I can't even say her name. It's like Beetlejuice. Oh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah. I mean, and it's just the makings of really, really, really horrible television. But my, my feeling is, and we can talk that we can do another podcast on this, that, you know, Tucker Carlson is the heir apparent to Trump, not DeSantis. So let's get ready to talk about that. But moving on as I don't know how much you know about this, but I'm, uh, it's very well known to my readers and listeners, but I'm an Anglophile. I love all things England. I am a better person. I am my best self when I am across the pond on the soil of England or the UK, you know, in Ireland and Scotland, I'm just a better me. But England was very much dominating the uh, <laughs> the pop culture news, not just because of soccer, but because there was a are you familiar with De Moi, the Instagram account? First of all, I've had dinner and have been with you in England, so I know your Anglophile tendencies. And second of all, <laughs> yes, I'm very familiar with it. So Dumois is, you know, this is, it, it, it's Gawker and Gawker stalker walked. So Dumois could run as the kids say. Um, and you know, it makes TMZ look like something from the nineties and very old fashioned, but Dumois has created this like incredible brand that people embrace and want to be seen wearing their swag. Like they get posted pictures of if they're wearing a Dumois hat. It's all about the branding of Dumois, but it's a uh, whole origin is an, a, anonymous sightings, whether it's just sort of, and they do well, they don't post it in real time. Gawker Stalker did. I get that was a real problem. So Dumois gives it days. Somebody could say, oh, I just saw George Clooney at this restaurant in Lake Como and they won't post it for a few days. It's anonymous, but it is, you know, storytelling in a way of sort of like who's been spotted with whom, who might be broken up with, who might be having an affair, what other stuff is happening. And they have been sort of at the forefront of a lot of the breaking news. Like they did the army hammer stuff. That's how it all came out. They knew that like Florence Pugh and her boyfriend, Zach Braff had broken up before the rest of the world. They knew about JLo and Ben before it was public. Like they definitely 
have very good sources and very good network of people leaking information. Before we get into the latest, why is something like that so successful today? When, especially when people want to see their names out there, why is something that's anonymous? Like, what is the thrill that people get from that? So gossip's part of social media and Jamal is great at it. I mean, they're giving you, they're giving you celebrity gossip, you know, anonymously on social media on a regular loop. It's a huge part of, of the makeup of this new communication, social media. And we as human beings, I mean, gossip has been at the beginning, since the beginning of time, right? I mean, but like, now it's, it's endless in real time on social. It really is. And I, I find the Demois, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I want to be a better person and say, like, I just don't I, I ignore all of this stuff. But obviously, it, it's very much embedded in a lot of what I do. I don't I try not to be a gossip site. I share stories that I've experienced myself when I'm writing or, or podcasting, but I try not to share other people's experiences. But there is this like obsessive need for people to like be able to express what they saw, even if they don't get credit for it. I think it's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, please don't share my email. But I just saw Ben Affleck making out with JLo at the bungalows, right? Like I'm not saying that, but that's, these are what people yeah. are saying. And it's just, it just is, is very strange. But what's so interesting is that they definitely, I don't know what the stat is. It seems to be pretty high that they get, you know, I mean, you can't hide from the public eye all the time when people are now uh, have an outlet to share this stuff with. And so the latest and greatest, um, nah, it's so embarrassing. I don't even know how I have to say, say uh, the term <laughs> can I even say it can I say it without embarrassing everyone but the term is pegging that was something I had sort of known about but I'd never really thought about and I didn't understand what the difference was but the term pegging is basically the term itself is between a woman and a man and that is when a a cis woman straps something on and has fun with her quote straight male. And that's fun. So that's part of the vernacular now. And the rumor had it that was spreading around like wildfire was that a, a prince, a member of a royal family was not said which one. It was not explained that it was definitely the English royal family, but the clues were that he had already had an affair that was discussed publicly. That's something that Prince William has had allegedly. And it sort of was just connected back to Prince William. But it's so funny because the internet went nuts about it. TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. And even Ryanair did a tweet that was then taken down. But as you know, everything lives forever where they, they tweeted an image of the plane seats with one of the armrests sticking up. And it says, William, we've saved a seat for you. <laughs> and I just got to say it, it goes back to even the soccer. I, when it's done correctly, when a brand gets involved with sort of a, a pop culture moment, it brings me so much joy. Like that's why I love the, takedowns that some of the Twitter handles have of the brands when they're taking something down. I love it so much. Did you follow any of that? Did that come onto your radar? Or do you just say, I'm not talking about it. I'm Brad Weston. I'm a You're just dragging me into a conversation that I'm, I'm not prepared to have. <laughs> <laughs> but you're aware, you were aware of it going on. I'm aware of it going on. And I, okay. I, I have to admit, I skimmed it in your newsletter this week. 
because it just wasn't where I go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I know that you didn't get a chance to see it. And I think you didn't watch it because it was something that did not resonate with a lot of people. But the last thing I want to talk about before we get into all things Brad Weston is the Will Smith apology. And I'm saying that in air quotes. Um, and the fact that you, Brad Weston, didn't watch it when you watched the slap in real time, we were all part of that moment just says to me how poorly this video apology, um, was. And so for those of you didn't, didn't get a chance to see it, it's not only in the newsletter, but it'll be in the show notes. It felt, first of all, like he was on, a, Will Smith was on a lot of medicine, medication of some kind. He um, is a great actor and yet spoke in such a robotic way. There was no preamble. He just got right into it at answering like sort of prefab questions that theoretically came from the public in a set that looks like a set of a show, like a different world or facts of life or something. And that's not being fair to those. But what I mean is a dated sitcom. Maybe it wasn't even that it looked like a trade show. If you were at a trade show booth with somebody giving away free phone covers, you would go into this little trade show place in a conference center at the Javits. It was so cold. It had fake trees. It had Ikea furniture. It was just bananas with like framed pictures of things like live life, love, you know, that kind of vibe. And he just got into it. I will say to you, Chris, I apologize to you. Uh, my behavior was unacceptable. And I'm here whenever you're ready to talk. And then he put the apology back on Chris. He's like, I've reached out to apologize to Chris and he's not ready to talk, but I'm here, Chris, when you're ready, which is like, fuck you. And then he apologized to Chris's family, but particularly Chris's brother, who I guess used to be his friend. I want to apologize to Chris's mother. I want to apologize to uh, Chris's family. You know, Tony Rock was my man. And uh, this, this is this is probably irreparable. And it just went into this whole thing again about him. And this is like his trigger was letting people down. Disappointing people is my central trauma. I hate when I let people down. It hurts me psychologically and emotionally to know I didn't live up to people's image and impression of me. And I am deeply remorseful and I'm trying to be remorseful without being ashamed of myself. What I found interesting was is that there is a clip, and I don't know if you saw it, where he he did the interview with David Letterman. You know how Letterman does this like interview, like big time sit down series now? And in that interview, he said that he had done an ayahuasca journey, because obviously, and in that journey, he saw his career ending in a scandal. And I just was like, wow. Did he then sort of manifest that because that's what his journey showed him? Or was it really something that was always going to happen? It was predetermined and we we know how fate works. So I've, I want to get to the bottom of that. But it just is a great reminder for me that I'm never fucking doing ayahuasca. It's just not my jam. I will <laughs> see the world burn and I'll never be able to recover. I didn't see that clip. Will has had a tightly controlled career for the majority of his career. And 
I also didn't watch the YouTube series, but it feels like this is all tied to whatever midlife crisis he's going through. And Wait, you didn't watch the Red Table Talk where he and his wife talked about the affair? No, that I did. There was a separate YouTube series where he was trying to get himself back in shape and, and this and that, but it turned into an entire kind of awakening and, and facing of issues that, again, I know somebody who actually worked on it, but I, I didn't watch it. Right. Well, he started to adapt, adapt. So like they became very, both he and his fa- his wife, you know, I think they were trying to be truth tellers to their, like very transparent and here's our world and here's our life and here's what we're doing. And we're going to talk about everything, the dirty. And then he started really getting into that narcissistic behavior of like, as I well know, as, as you watch me on Instagram can tell, I have that too, but he was like, come with me on this journey. But he was like obsessively posting TikToks and getting in with creators and, you know, showcasing more and more of his real life. I thought that was, yeah, maybe it was just all too much too much i think it was and 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 the slap obviously was horrible and it was a black eye for the whole industry in my opinion to see the i as i said to you and we talked about before i didn't i didn't watch the apology i wasn't ready for it i didn't want to see it you know and i don't think from what i've read and after the aftermath it hasn't been that well received no i don't know anybody who believes it was well received but we'll just have to see i mean i i that's not the first or last no. Uh, I think we hear of him. Okay. Now, Brad, I want to talk about you. So the thing, the way that I look at it is I want to talk about this, this newest movie, not okay on Hulu starring two women. I could not keep my eyes off of. I am obsessed with Zoe Deutsch. I had absolutely no idea Zoe Deutsch was the daughter of 80s icon Leah Thompson, who obviously was in so many movies, but to me, the most important movie that ever was made starred her, which was some kind of wonderful. I love that movie. And Zoe Deutsch is her daughter. Do you know, directed by Zoe's father and, and Leah's husband, Howie Deutsch, who directed Pretty Pink and Some Kind of Wonderful. Wait, what? No. Is that where they met? Did they meet on yeah. the set of Some Kind of Wonderful? I don't know, but I believe so. But yes. Well, we're just going to make that the story because that's so (laughs) perfect. Um, I wanted to be Watts, obviously. Um, I think in this day and age, if I wanted to be Watts as a kid, my family would wonder if I needed to have reassignment of my gender. But that was not the point. Watts was just a tomboy who played the drums. Um, That was played by Mary Stuart Masterson. She was the tomboy. She wore gloves. She played drums. She was badass. And Leah Thompson was the beautiful girl that I think it was that Eric Stoltz was like trying to impress. And everybody in my life was Leah Thompson. All the girls I wanted to sort of thought I was going to be when I grew up were Leah Thompson. But the girl I really wanted to be was Watts, who is the tomboy, badass rock and roll girl. And I sort of feel like I'm a mixture of Watts. Well, in Mary Stuart Masterson in a few of her movies. So she was my icon as well. But and then the other actress who I had not been familiar with, Mia Isaac. And I honestly, she's 18 or something. I have to say, Brad, I felt like I was watching, like, we're going to see her for the next 60 years of filmmaking. Like she was, I couldn't keep my eyes off of her. She was so, so relatable, so beautiful and so timely. And so I want to talk about this movie because it's so, the, the premise is that a young woman who's working at a, like a refinery 29 style media company, trying to break into writing, very self-absorbed, very sort of unsure of herself and 
sort of a Gen Z way, decides to impress a guy by saying she's going to be in Paris when she's not and decides to create a social media account around it and is posting all these things from her apartment and puts it out there. And then there is a terrorist attack in Paris that people assume she was near because of the Instagram photos. And she creates this whole narrative and becomes this sort of hero of this movement that Mia Isaac is a part of because Mia Isaac was involved with a school shooting. And so you touch on all of these real world things that are happening in this day and age of every single Gen Z person has had some contact with this. You know, it's such a beautiful story. It's also a story that I, you have to watch a movie. I don't want to give it away, but it is not all tied up with a pretty bow at the end, which I think is really impressive. So I just wanted to get a, like your sense. How does this movie get made? How did you get involved with it? How did Mia Isaac come into this? Because you clearly have identified an incredible talent there and, and a good little, a little side step, a little insight for people. Brad was living in my New York city apartment when this movie was made, when he was making this movie. So I feel like I'm somehow sort of involved with this movie. You were definitely involved with the movie, which is why I reached out to you this weekend to tell you about it because I feel part of your family having lived in your house and looking at potatoes cut out every day. <laughs> I did look at, you know, the credits to see if I got a credit, but alas, not this time, but maybe next time, Brad Weston. Maybe next time. So tell me about the movie. What was so cool about this was Zoe and Mia brought it to life, but it really started with a young uh, a young woman writer directing Quinn Shepard. So my, my former partner, Pam Abdi, found a script from Quinn that we tried to buy for television and she sold it to somebody else, to Noah Hawley without us. So, but we, we liked Quinn's voice so much that we got into business with her and we actually tried to do something with her and a fashion brand, uh, Bomb And we got really close to taking an idea of Quinn and Quinn's girlfriend, Nadia, is called The Perfect Woman and turning it into a six-part television series that was also going to become the featured advertising campaign for Balmain on a go-forward basis. Uh, I don't think, I never told you any of this, I don't believe, so you're hearing no, this live for the No, this is time. all new to me. So, so we went way down this road, and I went to Balmain to meet with the creative director of Balmain and the CEO of Balmain and their parent, financiers, the Qatari Royal Family Investment Fund. So Were you dressed like this, Brad? Were you wearing uh, your Aviator Nation in a baseball cap? I was not, but I was fairly close to dress like this. And, <laughs> and, and they didn't realize. And it dawned on me that the man who is now financing Alman had no interest whatsoever in doing this. And I was in the crosshairs of an internal board meeting that I had no right to be in. So I'm sitting there and they, Awkward. and they turn to me and say, do you want to pitch him the show and why we should do it? And I said, I don't want to pitch him the show. I think I should leave. So that was the end of that. So, we, <laughs> so it was actually a disastrous trip that then turned into a, a, a longer relationship with Quinn. And we made her a blind writing deal to say, hey, we think your voice is great. We couldn't get the television series. We didn't. We fucked up the bomb on thing. But we think you're amazing. You're this young, incredible voice. And let's just make a blind writing deal and you can write whatever you want. And the first thing she walked in was, was this outline for what turned into the movie called Not Okay. And what I loved about it was it's authenticity. You know, I mean, it's an often overused word these days. And I think it's a word that's been bastardized, quite frankly. Sorry. But I, I was like, oh, this is a Gen Z takedown of millennium, right? It was all skewering, you know, influencer culture. It was a satire of social media. But 
the underpinnings were a cautionary tale. And what I loved about it was at the time, I think Quinn was 24, 25. She directed her first movie, which was 18 for $150,000. It got accepted. What was that movie? It was called Blame and it got accepted. Her and her mom produced it. They mortgaged wow. their house to make it, got accepted into Tribeca. And, and Quinn was this amazing young voice. And, and Pam found Quinn and, and introduced her to us. And so we immediately read this outline and we're like, okay, this might not speak to us, but it's so authentic in what it is talking to. And it's so in her voice that we just loved it. We literally said, yes, please go. We accept it. Go write the script right away. Because I also think, Brad, you, you're you a very astute father. I mean, there are a lot of people I know, parents, men and women, who really are not uh, sort of in tune with what their teenage or young adult kids are sort of a part of. And you're you're not that person. You are so in tune with what the kids are doing. You're, you have such a great relationship with your kids. They keep you sort of informed on the latest and greatest. So I think you have, you have a real understanding of that. Even if it's not your world, you're still, you know, you're you're adjacent to it, if you will. We just talked about Duwan gossip sites. I, mean, I know. Well, there you go. And that's from your I read it every day. So come on. So yes, I, I love it. And how do you get ahead of trends when it takes you a year to write a script and a year and a year to make a movie on a fast track and still try to be ahead of a story that is in the zeitgeist right now? It's virtually impossible. It used to be a really cool part of our of what we did for a living, which is how do you get ahead of a trend and make something before it becomes a trend and then be right there when it hits, right? It's really hard to do that now because things happen on a daily basis and things change on a day on a minute to minute basis. So it was it was risky to go into this project with Quinn. Look, we made a movie called Queen and Slim, right? It was about police brutality six months before George Floyd. And that was because wow. The creators of that movie, Lena Waithe and Melina Masukas, they knew that this was part of their culture and they wanted to bring what was part of, unfortunately, part of the culture to a mainstream audience to try to stop it from happening. Quinn, in the same way, wanted to do that with influencer culture and social media. How does she satirize it and 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 really look at the underbelly and the dark side of it, right? So then, and then the pandemic hit and theatrical movie business went away and we said, okay, this isn't really a movie for us to finance and, and release theatrically. And we, we were able to sell it to Searchlight, who embraced it as one of the first two movies they were going to make for their streaming business with Hulu, which was a platform for this movie. Their audience is predominantly young women. This was a movie made by and for young women. I, I do want to say as much as it's sort of a, you know, a satire of this moment and, it, and it's funny and it's all that. It was incredibly moving. I mean, it's one of those movies where I went from like, ha ha ha, I totally get it. Like, you yes, to I was crying. The scene of of when Mia's doing giving her performance, I was truly crying. I was and I was crying at the end when it ended the way it ended. I just cried. And so it was incredibly touching, moving, but also just very real, very real. That wasn't the original scripted ending. It wasn't the ending we shot and we didn't reshoot it. We just took off the ending we shot through the test screening process. And that's the ending we ended up with because it was the right ending for the movie. We never tied it up with a bow. Don't please don't. Don't get me wrong. We always wanted the movie to be interpreted by the audience. What did she redeem herself or not? And we right. had 
We always had polarizing endings, but that was not the intended ending. It was a Sopranos ending. I loved it. I loved it. Um, <laughs> what do you think happens with Mia? I mean, is she, I think both Mia and Zoe are like the stars of this generation to come. I think, I mean, look, I, it, it thrills me to no end to see to see the two of them get the accolades they're getting and, and they're evenly divided. I'm happy for Zoe. Zoe was a driving force in, in, in making this movie and the design of this movie and being Quinn's partner in making this movie and marketing this film. What I'll say is in all good movies, I think my job is to help the directors make the film and then get out of the way and let them do their job, right? And I think it never was more true in this case where I'm old, I'm an old white dude. And to see these two young women who are 27, 28 years old now, you know, but started, you know, take this movie with a real understanding of social media, a real understanding of how to market this film on social. And we brought in some some people that to work with them and to just get out of their way and let Quinn and Zoe go make and market the movie was really fun to see. Mia, there was a lot of complaints I saw on social that Mia wasn't part of the campaign. That wasn't by choice. She's off shooting something now. So just not that, not that it matters, but we nobody was ever trying to hide or bury Mia. She's amazing when she read for this part we did a chemistry knew. read with her and zoe and we just knew she was uh. heartbreaking she was heartbreaking in her audition she did the spoken word speech in her audition she came up she was young she came up with her dad who's an amazing young man and she was incredible to work with uh, I think I mean, we're going to have a long career, but I hope and Mia. Yeah, will. Mia, as far as I can tell, I mean, it was it was truly I said it in the news that it was like watching a star is born, not the movie, but like a star was born in front of our eyes. You made this movie, I know, because you were in my my apartment. It was a rebound of covid. It was sort of like covid hit again. What's it what was it like making that movie then? Was it difficult? Did you have to stop production? So so Delta, I guess, was hitting hard. So we just followed protocols and not wood. We were okay. We were okay until the last day. The night we wrapped, we had a pickup day. We wrapped on a Friday night at midnight. And the night we wrapped, our DP got COVID. So we had to go down for five days and, and then and isolate everybody. No one else got it. Zoe didn't get it. Quinn didn't get it. And we shot the pickup day without, after everyone tested negative. It's tricky, but the systems work and the cadences of testing works. And yeah. it's hard and it's not fun. More than anything, the masking doesn't allow you to create a culture on set, which is which is part of the movie making process. But it all works and you get through it. Well, you guys absolutely made it work. Um, I have one more question, and that is what was your favorite part of, my, of living in my apartment? I know what you're going to say. It doesn't have to be actually the, my apartment, my apartment building. Oh, the, what was the doorman? Richie! It was Richie, Richie, wasn't it? It was Richie every day. It's I'm Richie. Talking, talking Yankees and Mets. I mean, he was a diehard Mets fan. I'm a diehard Yankee fan. Yeah, if you, if you, the only things you need to talk about with him are, are the Mets and Aerosmith, and you have a friend for life. And all the rock and roll. So yeah. Richie is, is by far the greatest. Although the cutout <laughs> I have a life-size cutout of, it's more than life-size, like three times the life uh, size of potato uh, cutout that lives in my apartment. But I will say uh, when I did my pros and cons about living in New York or 
leaving New York. Um, one of the cons for leaving New York, I think number one was Richie leaving Richie, my doorman. He, he's my protector. I was like, how do I live in a world without Richie looking over and looking after me all day? He did love you and he he did love you and he did care about your apartment in ways I've never seen before. Yeah, I know. He took care of my plants. I don't understand the, the LA culture. I need a doorman and a super, I do. It's just, it's like part of my heart and soul. Um, okay, Brad, we're going to end with something we always do on this pod. And it's the make out, marry or mute. Okay. So I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to make out with somebody we didn't talk about, uh, but was from your movie, the the actor Dylan O'Brien. His name is Colin. I understand that he's probably a child. I don't know. Is he like 22? But he was just the worst of the worst kind of guy. But like you love him in this movie. He's sort of like a Pete Davidson meets any number of these guys that are on content creators. And I loved him. He was just funny. I liked his character. I would marry from a different show that I've gotten obsessed with over the weekend, um, though I know I'm not his type, is Neil Patrick Harris, uh, who is Doogie Howser. And we love him for that. He's also, uh, I don't remember his name, but he was the best in How I Met Your Mother. He has a new show. It's the Sex in the City of 2022, actually with gay men and a diverse cast. We love it. And it's called Uncoupled. And I, on Netflix, I couldn't get enough of it. I watched all eight episodes in one viewing. I loved it so much. It's got an incredible cast, but I would marry Neil Patrick Harris just because I've said it before. I think some of the best marriage marriages are between straight women and gay men. Um, I'm looking at Barry Diller and Diane von Furstenberg. You know, that's what I, I aspire to. So I would say Neil Patrick Harris. And then I would mute. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I will mute anything about the live tournament. I would mute Greg Norman. I would mute Tucker Carlson. I would mute anybody that was at Bedminster World over the weekends. That's Those are my three. How about them apples? Okay, well, listen... I have found Brad's weak spot, and that is this is not something he wants to do. So we're just going to go out with mine, which I think are really good enough for the two of us. I would assign your at least marry and make out with. I would assign it to you, Richie the doorman. And um, that's my that's my takeaway for you, Brad. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining. This is fascinating. Brad, you're the best. I know you have a million things to be doing, and I thank you for the time and everybody go watch Not Okay on Hulu. Thanks for having me, Brooke. I appreciate it. Peace out.